1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
2: We had a great talk with uh, Kyle Petty before vacation. The whole time I was just thinking about, I had asked Jake if he could uh, get a hold of Kyle or, and his people and see if we get a little more time because I, I read through this book and you understand like the book wasn't even out yet. Mm-hmm. So we had to have it digitally downloaded, printed, and collated so we could have it. Read it, and I was like, I, did, I, I feel like I'm a race fan. Yeah. And there was so much stuff I didn't know that is just so genuinely human. If you, there's no way to read it and not be a fan of just the whole family, the way they live their life. Just, and yes, winning is great. Racing is great. But what you do with everything, what you do with how you handle yourself, how you treat your family, how you treat your friends, how you deal with adversity...
1: It's all the measure of a man, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's who you are. And as, as is almost always in NASCAR, after that interview, I reached out through his team, through the family and whatever, and immediately they're like, yep, no, we'll get him back on. No worries. You let me know when. So uh, the name of the book is
2: Swerver Die. It's out now. Uh, and it, I, I, again, the generations. Uh,
0: hold on. Let's, let's just grab Kyle real quick. Oops. Born June 2nd in Randleman, North Carolina. The son of NASCAR legend Richard Petty... He made his stock car debut at age 18, winning his first race, the 1979 Daytona Arca 200, making him the youngest driver ever to win a major stock car race. He went on to a NASCAR career that found him with 173 top 10 finishes and 8 wins, before retiring in 2008. And now he tells his story in his new book, Swirp or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. Please welcome NASCAR legend, Kyle Petty.
3: Hey, welcome back, Kyle. Thank you, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I, I, listen, I, I'm just going to hang up now because that intro and all that stuff, that's like over the top. All
2: <laughs> <over the laughs> yeah, right, I'll just that's send it. it. I'll send it. You can start your day with it every day.
3: Yes. Yes. <laughs> listen, I want that to be my alarm. When my <laughs> alarm goes off, that's what I want to hear. The voice of God saying that. Man, I'll tell
2: you. You, uh, this, so much in this book, and we touched on it, but it started, you know, with your grandfather, and then, of course, your father, the king, and, and you and, and your son, and, but I just didn't know, I, I guess I always assume, like many people in America, that the petties were just a wealthy family, somehow, I don't know why you accept that. <laughs> But, you know, I didn't understand, like, you, you guys racing, as when you were a kid, when your father was younger, it was hand to mouth. you got to work your ass off. If you're going to have a race team, if you're going to build a car and you're going to do it, you're going to have to work. And it's going to be, you know, just on the edge every time. And you better win money because that's how we're coming back.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and that listen, all, all businesses um, start that way. You know, all, no, no business starts on top. And all businesses start that way. And racing started that way. From that, from that very first race in Charlotte that my granddad was in, um, you know, the the thing was, let's go run and see if we can make a couple of hundred bucks, and that was it. And if we make a couple hundred bucks, we'll go to the next race. Um, and they just kept going and they kept going. And then when my granddad dad had his bad crash in '61, uh, they were basically out of business. And my my dad and my uncle, and my cousin or their cousin Dale Inman, had to basically rebuild. And man, when they when they set their mind to rebuild and, they just went to the top, and that—that that was it. I mean, it, it's incredible the legacy, uh, and and the things that they did. Well, but it was—you know—racing was just a funny sport. It wasn't—it—it it wasn't the sport it is today. You—you you can't look at it and compare it the same.
2: No, it was a bunch of bootleggers and 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 rednecks that had a need for speed and, and a, com- a competitive nature that's unlike any other. But you coupled it with a, this hardworking blue-collar mentality of you get it done and then you go race. And it was just, it was, it's just. I mean, it's so easy to say it was a different time, but they were just different yeah. men. The kind of men who who raced them yes. were different kind of guys.
3: Yes, that, most definitely. Listen, listen, and and you know, so and the bootlegging. I like to refer to it as the beverage transportation business, but bootlegging. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, when you when you look at it, my dad. We were talking. I swear, we were talking about this about a month and a half ago. That that very first race in Charlotte. Um, about 80% of the people that were there were in the liquor business, uh, Were in, they either hauled it, they made it, they bought it, they drank it, uh, whatever they were in the liquor business. But the other thing that happened that, that I think a lot of people lose sight of, and this is a, this sport is a very patriotic sport. Um, you know, when we go to the racetrack, the military presence, the flyovers, the prayers, the pledge of allegiance, the national anthem, and, and that comes from, and a lot of people have lost sight of this through the year. That comes from this sport did not really start uh, to be the sport it is until after World War II. And in the South, in the South where the sport was born, you had so many young men that came back from World War II. They came back from Germany. They came back from Italy. They seen, had seen so much devastation, so, ma- so many atrocities, had seen so much and had lived so much, you couldn't put them back on the farm. They they couldn't go back to the right, farm right because it was a different it was a different life. They were different people. They were hardened, they were cynical, they were things that, that their life and their world had just changed.
0: That's right. So to let
3: off steam, um, they tore the fenders off some cars and went out in the pasture and run into each other for a while. <laughs> that's how stock car racing and, and that's how it was born. Yeah, and, and honestly, sure. they 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 didn't feel like they had anything to lose and they had everything to gain and they were looking for that excitement. Yeah, and, they did and, lost and, it all. And that, they, they, yeah, and that filled that filled a void in them that you know without without everything that had happened in World War II, um, I, I don't believe the sport would would have ever taken off like it did.
2: I, I think people, I think that's a fantastic observation because so many things came from that uh, because they you're right they lost their innocence that everything that you'd only been told because you did you lived in the South you lived on a farm we didn't have the internet. We only knew what we were told. Then you go away and you it's this terrible world out there. It's a hard world. You lose your friends, but you're part of something, something bigger than you. And then you come back and you're just dumped into society again. You're right. You you want to find a team, whether it be a race team, but you want to find your own tribe somehow, some way, and then let that out. And I and I absolutely I think that's that's how all the motorcycle clubs started. Yeah,
3: exactly. And and listen, they run parallel. When you look at it, it just runs parallel. Yeah. You know, and, and this that the difference was this is a way um, for, for people to make a living. And, and, you know, a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys, my grandfather was the very, very first one um, to, to say, you know, this is all I'm going to do. I'm just going to be a race car driver. But most of these other guys, like Buck Baker and, and Joe Weatherly uh, and, and the, the Flock brothers, those, those guys from the early 50s and mid-50s, they worked other jobs. They were loggers. They were businessmen. Um, you know they they own bakeries. I mean, it, it's fascinating when you go back and you see these guys that won races, and, and they were bakers. Yeah, uh, they would they had a bakery during the week and they'd race on the weekend because they didn't feel like racing was was a respectable enough business and they didn't feel like it was something that they could make a living at. But as it grew into that, they all closed the doors on their other businesses and went racing.
2: Oh, and let's start with you, Grandpa. Let's talk about Daytona. Forty-one thousand people there, and they. He he wins by two feet, but they don't. The France family gives it to uh, Beauchamp, right? Beauchamp. To, to <laughs> yeah, John. they give it to
3: Johnny Beauchamp. Johnny yep. Beauchamp from yep. from Iowa. And um, you know, my my granddad knew he won. Knew he won from the very time they dropped the green or checkered flag. Knew it. Um, and and I and I say in the book, and, and I say it again. My grand my granddad swore that was uh, that not giving him the win that day was just a publicity stunt by Bill France to get publicity for this new sport and this new racetrack in daytona uh was to drag it out another two or three days and have a little controversy yeah but my granddad's in the hotel room uh sat in the hotel room and kept arguing kept calling up calling up you know who won i know i won get a picture and t taylor warren had a picture um and uh they took it and he said lee you won and he said i don't have the trophy uh johnny took it back to iowa and my granddad said i really don't want the trophy but i'll be back for the check in about 15 minutes <laughs> um, and he came by. He came by, and picked up his check, man, and headed on back to North Carolina. And I think the check was for like twenty some thousand dollars, which was crazy. a huge amount of money. Huge amount of money in nineteen fifty nine. And for a for a family who had for a family who had honestly just, in a lot of ways, had lived just race to race and hand to mouth to to make it to the next race. Um, you know that they they felt like that was that's what racing was all about. And listen. From that day on, every time we went back to Daytona, uh, we were on a mission to take as much money home as we could take home. So
2: your grandfather was hard; like he was hard on your dad. So, but for, before I jump to my next question, did your did your grandfather ever get the trophy for that win? Did it ever come into the family? Oh yeah,
3: okay. yeah, he got it. it. It was later; it was like five or six months later. Hey, I tell people it's kind of like winning the Super Bowl, but they say, okay, the other team's got the trophy, and they'll just ship it to you sometime. And you're like, no, I want to hold it. I want to hoist it. Not, <laughs> yeah. not, not my granddad. Yeah, he just wanted to go to the bank. Cash he just it. wanted to go to the bank. And he
2: would. And this, he was so serious about racing and competitive, he raced against your father. Your father was just, he was a few months shy of yeah. 21 and won his first big professional, like a, the big one. It was, uh, what track was he at? Uh,
3: yeah, they were down in Atlanta. Atlanta. Won, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, but he didn't win. Uh, <laughs> my granddad, my granddad protested. And once again, once again, he said my dad didn't win. Um, and he was right. In the end, my, my, my granddad was right. My dad had not won. He was a lap down and my granddad did it for two reasons. And one was, uh, the main reason was if, if my granddad, if if he won the race, because he had a current model car, he had a new car. Uh, I think the race paid two or $300 more, um, if he won the race. So the family paid two or $300 more if my dad, if my granddad won than if my dad won. And the other thing was my granddad told him, he said, listen, if you're going to win races, are, are, are basically what he was saying was nobody's ever going to give you anything. you got to work for it. And if anybody does give you anything, it wasn't worth anything to them. That's, That's right. the only reason they gave it away. That's right. And, and this win is worth something to me. So I'm not giving it to you. And you don't want to win your first race by somebody giving it to you. You need to go earn it. And, and you know. I, th- I think my dad took it took that advice to heart. He went and earned 200 more of them. So um, <laughs> yeah. that, that, he he learned
2: his lesson. Well, man, yeah, there were no participation trophies in the Petty family.
3: <laughs> no, no. Listen, listen. You know what? You just if you if we had grown up in a time with participation trophies. My granddaddy would have took the trophy and beat the kid over the head that gave it to him. Um, That that would have been it. No, you got to work. There's winners and losers in life and in sports, and you got to learn that.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
2: So there's so many crazy things in this book that I I, I just related so deeply to. I'm, I'm, I started into the chapter, and there's a lot of questions I have, but chapter five, Loving Speed, a motorcycle will teach you some respect. I, Growing up in Hayes, Kansas, I had a newspaper route. I wanted this little SL70 so bad. I'm nine years old, 10 years old, and I, uh, those big old wide streets, I had to walk down both sides. You couldn't even throw it from the middle. And uh, literally week by week, month by month, my dad said, you could have it if you can buy it. And, uh, and I would walk two miles to give the guy $7 to pay. Like, I had a stack of little receipts yeah. of, like, knocking the number down. And the guy begging, just take it home, Bill. Tell my dad. He's like, nope, he's not getting it until he pays for it. On my birthday, he finally brought, I think, the last, you know, whatever it was, $100 I owed. But that motorcycle meant more to me. At that moment, I could leave. I could go somewhere others couldn't. Yep. I could be by myself. I could, I could scare myself by riding across these great big fields, and I'd be further away from home than I'd ever been on my own, and it was scary and killer and amazing and awful and awesome at the same time.
3: Yeah, it was freedom. Yeah. That, 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 that's why. In, in a nutshell, it's just freedom, man. It's just, you know, when I was a kid, and, I, and my dad, you know, he told me, he said, listen, a motorcycle will teach you respect. When you, when you think you know everything about it and you think you know how to ride it, it'll put you on the ground, Fact. and it'll show you, that, that you don't know everything, and you need to learn more, and you need to respect what speed is, and you need to respect what it is. But it was, man, it was that that opportunity to to put yourself, put your brain in a helmet, and just ride away. Uh, and you were away from your parents. You were an adult, yeah. even if you were eight years old. You you were a grown up, man. You were you were in the real world. You were doing something, um, you know. And it was special. And and listen, that that I I'm 62 years old, and I put on my helmet and ride across country, and I still feel exactly like I'm an eight year old on that motorcycle, yeah. and I always will feel that way. I
2: hope so. I, I feel the same way, like, what's around that next corner? And that's that's what you're chasing. What's around the next yep. corner? And 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 so I'm reading through this book, and again, I'm just falling in love with it because I realize how important your family was to racing. Well, I was talking to Ryan earlier, and we touched on it the other day, was your dad was in a, a terrible wreck, and your grandmother saw it. He, he got in a yeah. terrible, it rolled and rolled and rolled, and his arms were coming out, and thank God he didn't lose an arm. But at that yep. moment, she, your grandmother, changed racing that night.
3: <laughs> yeah, and nobody, nobody knew it. She made she made what is now known as the window net. Yeah, uh, she took an old uniform that he had tore it up, and created this thing that that strapped into the window to keep him the next time that thing rolled over to keep him from coming out of it. And that, they run it a few races, and NASCAR said, "Man, what a great idea! Let's put this in every car." And to this day, to this day, it's in every car. And yeah. and you know, and and the thing is, the original one and is in the hall of fame. <laughs> in the hall of fame, my grandmother's in the hall of fame, my granddad's in the hall of fame, uh, my dad, my uncle, all those guys. So it's it's fascinating how how our whole family. And and listen, it, it's because this is not a sport and never was a sport to us. It was just your way of life. That's right. what you did. That's what you loved. That's what you cared about. And when you feel that passionate about it, whether you're the guy sitting in the car or whether you're the guy working on the car. Or whether you're the, the the guy or the women watching the car, uh, you're a part of it. And that's the way our whole family has always been.
2: Well, and then, you know, to that exact point, it is a way of life. But your mom was like, listen, you need to go to school, business school. Like, you have to follow. She, she was really, she was on you. Your dad's like, hell, come on over to the shop. Let's work. But she, yeah, but- she pushed it, you And you, the best was, you're too smelly for college.
3: I was, I, was, I was a stinky kid. I was a stinky <laughs> kid, uh, like big day. I, I, I worked at the race shop, So, and, and my dad made me work uh, in every part of the race shop. Uh, I had to work for a year in each part. And it just so happened that when my mom wanted me to go off to business school, uh, I was working in the body shop. So uh, every day I would leave the body shop and head to class. Uh, and I was covered in Bondo dust, so I looked like I worked in a talcum powder factory. Sure. Uh, and, and I smelled like lacquer thinner uh, because, of, because of all the paint that we would spray. And after about two weeks, the teacher said, the, the dean called my mom and said, we're just going to give you your money back. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, but, but don't, don't send the stinky kid down here anymore. So that was, that was, the, end, that was the end of my, my formal education uh, when it came to books and learning.
2: Oh, I would say that uh, you you know what you know. Like the the world's going to teach you so many things uh, that 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 you can never learn in school. But uh, look, you know and I know you don't get to where you, the petty family is in this world by not understanding business, by not understanding how the law works, how everything works because here's, I mean, the bigger it gets, the more the opportunity, you know, to undo it is, right? It's yeah. It's such an yeah. amazing story when you when you look at this, because then you get into your car, then you're going to get your chance. it is so much harder, you know, when those hundreds of miles are in front of you. Like, you realize these guys that you, I think when you're so young, we're so cocky, right? We're just, we're going to live forever. Everything's going to be great. We're strong. And you're, you're wrung out
3: after a race. Yeah. it's. listen, you said it a minute ago, Um, that that my grandfather's generation was tough, but that generation, my dad's 85 now. That generation that came along in the the 30s and, and were kids when World War II came along. Uh, and we're coming out of the depression, and that's a strong. Those guys were just, man, they didn't look strong. <laughs> they, they didn't look it, but some somehow mentally they were the toughest that's guys right. that that I ever knew. And and there's that that's racing, man. You got to be mentally tough, and these guys were so mentally tough. Um, I was 18, man. I thought, shoot, I, I just I, I just played high school football, basketball, baseball. I've been running for the last six years, man. I'm right. tough. I can beat these guys. And they ran circles around me and then would smoke cigarettes and drink beer and laugh at me um, <laughs> was because when I was laid out on the concrete. So that that was the funny part, man. It's like, yeah, yeah, they were, they were finally honed, finally trained athletes uh, yeah. and they were kicking my butt, man. It was it was fun. It was it was a co- it's a cool time to live through. It's not that way anymore. But that was a cool time to live through. And, and you talk
2: about whether or not you finished out that, that business college. Your grandfather, your father, and you knew, like as it started to become bigger and that petty name became big, you would go out and do uh you would basically do appearances. You would take the car out, yeah. people could see it. You showed up and the guy, you know, it was a drill, it's a very simple Chuck Berry process. Money in the bag, give me the money, give me the ten grand. Give and then, That's right. And then the show starts. But not until then.
3: And, but not until then. You you pay we race. And that yeah. guy that my granddad kept saying we, we loaded and unloaded and loaded and unloaded, and that guy wouldn't bring us the money, and finally we loaded up. And then some guy wanted to wanted to punch my granddad, and my granddad told him, we're going to make more money here tonight than you're going to make all year, partner. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and and spit on the ground and walked out. My granddad couldn't have hit that guy any harder. I'm telling you, man, it was just – but that's how we – in the beginning, that's how we made a lot of our racing money uh, because my dad had done so much, and his name was out there. People wanted to see what his kid could do. So uh, local tracks would pay us to come. My granddad would go, and he was the banker. He'd collect the money. I'd drive the race car, and we'd load up and try to get out of there without having to fight.
2: Yeah. Let me tell you something, partner.
3: <laughs> partner. That's partner. It.
2: <laughs> but these are the lessons that you cannot find for a kid now. And I was looking at great uncles in that in that genre or in that, or that at, at age, and they were just you know, they taught you things. Yeah, hell, man, I remember the silliest thing. Ten years old, my Uncle Paulie looked at me and, he, and I, we were eating at a restaurant. He goes, hey, men don't drink from straws. <laughs>
1: just yeah, ridiculous right.
2: stuff that stays with you for the rest of your life. Yep. Sticks in your head, man. Sticks yeah. in your head
3: always. So yep.
2: as you're going through this book, by the way, if you're just joining the show, the great Kyle Petty's with us. And it the book is Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. And it just talks about the like your surrogate family, the people that you live with, the people that you come to love. That that are, are you know like a band or anything else. It, it, when you're together all the time, it's either going to be the best experience of your life or the worst.
3: Yeah, you know, and and, that's it. and yeah. My, Michael and that's Waltrip. It.
2: That's... Michael Waltrip was really the smelly kid.
3: <laughs> he was, not he? Was the smelly kid? He had stinky shoes, man. But he didn't have a place to live, and that's that's kind of the way. You know, it's so funny. It, the whole group, the group you race with, the group you race against, the group um, that you go out every Sunday afternoon and try to beat into submission on the racetrack, they end up being your best friend. They end up being the people that have your back. They end up being the people that understand what it's like the most. Um, And I I, I think that's the the special part about this sport. I think that's the special part about sports in a lot of ways. You can compete against another team, but you know exactly what they went through to get to the same place you are. You know what I mean? And you respect that. You of course. that. You want to kick their butt. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of respect involved.
2: And, and you know, this was, we really start talking about the 70s, 75 NASCAR and stock car racing was really, really coming into its own. And, uh, you know, you see stuff like, I was reading through, so when I finally get to Nashville bound, has anybody seen the meat man? Uh, I was like, what? And I had to go back and find this stuff. I didn't realize that one guy had approached you and a bunch of other drivers and said, Hey, why don't we record an album? And, Nobody had really thought of it until that point but I'm sure it was wildly popular
3: <laughs> I, listen let, let me just say this uh ac dc that you just played they were wildly popular yeah. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we were yeah. more like we were more like the album that and 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 the album that came off of mutual Omaha's wild kingdom we were just a bunch of animal calls out there man um it was it was not but it was fun man it was fun you, because you got to do something different you know what I mean I think that was uh that was the draw for all of us. It wasn't just, you know, our, our you know, I won't say mundane, because driving a race car is not mundane, but it wasn't what you usually do. So they let us go make, a, make an album. We all sang. And um, we all went and did it, and I promoted it. And somewhere down the line, I got a record deal out of it, and I couldn't believe that. Um, but I got a record deal out of it, and I got to open for Hank Jr. and Randy Travis and some of those people. Danny and Tucker. then it got to be a... Yeah, but then it got to be a job. Uh and I didn't need two jobs. because I, I really never had a job. Uh and that's what I tell people all the time, I really have never had a job. But um it got to be it got to be fairly hectic. I was flying to Atlanta every Wednesday night, commercial, playing in a bar, playing two gigs, two sets in a bar and flying home and then leaving out in a car on, on Thursday morning to head to a racetrack somewhere to race. And then I got to flying from racetracks back uh, to do concerts, I flew with Richard Childress and Earnhardt's crew from uh, from Richmond, Virginia, back to Raleigh to to open for Hank C- or Hank Jr. So, I mean, it's just it, it got really hectic, and I was like, man, I wanted to be a race car driver from the time I was five. So, I went back to racing.
2: But it's got to be tempting to be that guy on stage. I mean, you played some big places, and you played with <laughs> some great. I mean, and listen, you could do it. You you know, the other guys. I think it was it was more of a. a you know, not a joke, but, but an, an oddity and, and an interesting thing. You you had a good voice, no doubt about it. And otherwise, they wouldn't give you the record deal if they didn't think, you know, nothing in life is for free, right? The only way they're going to put that money yeah. out to do all the publicity and promotion and producing is if they believe it's going to come back to them. they got to believe you can actually do it, you know. Yeah,
3: so, somebody did, but I, just always remember this. All decisions are not good decisions. So somebody made a bad decision and <laughs> said, <laughs> Let's do, but you know what the the, the fun part was, and, and I used to laugh, and I still tell people uh, today, the best part was I could get up on stage, man, I could play that guitar, and if I missed a note or if I forgot the words, they didn't haul me off in an ambulance. Um, like when you, when you drive a race car, if you make a mistake, you get right. an ambulance ride. That's right. your parting gift. You get an ambulance yeah. ride, man. and I'm, I'm like sitting up there and I'm like, man, that didn't hurt at all. I just missed I just missed a whole friggin verse out of this song. And that didn't hurt at all. I just keep going, and the fans <laughs> keep singing, and it was good. It was good.
2: The meeting between you and Hank Williams Jr. to me was such an interesting moment, as as it came about in the book, and you know, because you think about your father, his father. You guys meet. Yeah. You're going to do a show with him,
3: and he and he lays
2: it out, and it's just like he just says, "It's it's a big shadow, isn't it?"
3: Yeah, <laughs> it like, is. And and but but you know what? It, you and I, I I really honestly had never thought about it up until that point, but. In all honesty, um, you know, I'm I'm sure he had, you know, you know, Roseanne Cash and some of those, he had run across people probably who who knew, but not, you know, Dale, Dale Jr. um, understands that. But but when you really start looking around the world today, there's not many people that have grown up like Hank, Hank Jr. or, or like myself or like. Like Dale, and, and and when you lose that father, like Dale Jr. and Hank Jr. did, right? It's even it's even it's more dramatic. It's a sure. lot more dramatic, uh, and the shadow's longer. Yes. Um, because in, in a lot of ways, the shadow becomes a myth, um, That's and, right. and the myth myth grows. So it it was it was an interesting it was an interesting conversation, and and he's a really just a nice nice man, just a really nice man.
2: Yeah, and, and it is a heavy thing because you're. that's exactly what's what I was thinking was the myth grows. You could see your father that day and and yeah. you knew how he was running in the points and how everything was working. You know, with that, when you looked at, uh, you know, when you're Hank Williams Jr., I've always felt a little sad for him because to me, you could always see he, that shadow was always there with him. Yeah. It, just, it just seemed like it always affected him. And I always thought, man... You're, you're, and again, it's just, its just. I guess it, all his great songs probably came from that pain of losing his father and standing in that shadow. But it's still a hard thing to watch.
3: Yeah, it, it, it is. And it's, uh, you know, but he's, he became his own person. There's a little bit of that in every song, sure. but he became his own man. Without a doubt. You have to applaud that. So did Dale Jr. So yeah, I, I, I a applaud doubt. that and, and admire those guys for that.
2: And as a guy who's always had long hair, uh,
3: never cut your hair.
2: We've learned this the hard way. We have learned it the <laughs> yeah, hard
3: not, way. Yeah, not going to do that. That's a, that's. A, I'm just going to let it fall out naturally, man. It just yeah. it, 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 it it gets longer every day because there's still a lot of it on the pillow, and I get farther away from the pillow every day. Man. <laughs> so it, it gets longer. Well, what
2: happens is the, the reason I bring the joke up for you guys listening is because you haven't read the book yet. If you have, you know. But Swerver die, Life at My Speed in the first family of NASCAR racing by Kyle Petty. It talks about how the, the one of the owners they hated it. They just it pissed them off. They didn't want you to have long hair and they they talked to you enough about it. You went fine, fine. And you cut it.
3: And, yeah. And yeah. I, I cut it in a Dorothy Hamill too. I went ahead and just got, <laughs> I wanted it to be stupid looking. If I was going to oh, so cut it, I wanted it to be stupid looking. And then I went and broke my leg yeah. and, and Felix, Felix was from Cuba. Uh, I was in a bad wreck at Talladega and broke my yeah. leg. Felix was from Cuba. So I convinced him, um, he was a little superstitious about things. Um, Yes, I am right looking for it. So, I, but I'm, I, but he was a little sorry. Some fan just drove by. That's okay. uh, <laughs> I I, I'm sitting in a parking lot. I'm sitting in park So uh, we were, but Felix is a little superstitious. So he's like, "Okay, don't cut your hair again." So that got me through my haircut phase, where I got I got one haircut, uh, and that was it.
2: Yeah. By the way, he says uh, it got into an accident. The femur was sticking out of his
3: goddamn thigh. Oof.
2: Was yeah. It, was it that not? Happened. Yeah.
3: That's a big bone. Yeah, the bone. Yeah, the big bone came out. That, that, that happens sometimes. And then <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't even write this in the book. So, so to save weight, so when I got to the hospital, I didn't even write this part. I should have put this part in the book, too. So when I'm laying in the hospital in the emergency room in, in our infield in care center, the nurse said, we're going to cut your uniform off. And I said, oh, no, you, you probably don't want to do that. Right. And she said, she said, listen, it's already torn. It's going to be okay you don't need it and i said yeah but i don't have on any underwear uh, i was i was i was trying to save right. weight so i didn't wear any sure i did i i thought if you didn't wear a t-shirt and wear your underwear you could save a pound or so to that race car and that make it run faster that's how <laughs> that's how crazy race car drivers are man
2: right well you you know and this guy felix by the way ended up being a pretty great guy to you in in in, in the sense hell he gave you a rolls royce didn't he
3: yeah when i won a race i won um he put it up for Daytona, and I didn't win Daytona, but I went to Rockingham and kicked her butt down there. So uh, he let me have it. <laughs> and, and then everybody – then with my long hair, with my long hair and a Rolls Royce, then everybody thought I was a drug dealer, not a race car driver. So that <laughs> didn't help my image any. So um, – <laughs> but but I still got that thing, man. I still got that thing. He's an, he, Felix is a special – Special, special man, a special person in my life.
2: Well, and talking about weight and not wanting to wear underwear. Sometimes we we think we're geniuses, and uh, when you're young, especially, and you don't think it through. That 350 pounds. Yeah, that's a lot of weight. Yep. Yeah. So you have to be. I, what's what's the weight you had to be? Thirty-three
3: fifty. It was thirty-seven then. Thirty-seven hundred. Thirty-seven hundred then. So we took three hundred and fifty out and left it in the truck, and then we couldn't get it back in, and we got caught. That that's called cheating. For the people uh, listening, that's called cheating. I call it racing, (laughs) but, you know. Yeah. yeah, uh, It's been in the rules when you can do one thing and then get it back to where it needs to be. Uh, But it's called cheating when you get caught. We got caught, so it was cheating. But but it was fun. It was fun, dude.
2: I thought it was so uh, interesting, though, that you realized, so you win the race, you place, then you realize, oh, we're going to go back for inspection again. But we can't. So what they had done was they had taken – uh, lead, and basically formed, like, the hell, what was your helmet at that point? 45 pounds, the one that you left yeah. in the car?
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We we just put weight everywhere, man. As long as we can make something weigh, like, triple what it was, we'd put it in the car. Listen, if we could have put a kitchen sink in the car and took it out, we would have put it in just to go through inspection. So we, then, we, we, we put everything there was. It was a little bit crazy.
2: you get in there, and then you, uh, and then, but you... You realize, oh, I'm getting caught, and you did the smartest thing you could possibly do before it yeah. runs on the scale, before it gets all the way to official. You, you just you cop to it. You, you take him to the side and you tell him, "Hey, this is going to come up 350 light."
3: Yeah, yeah. Listen, it's like it's like when you're sitting across from your parents at the kitchen table. They already know. <laughs> right. They already know you. You might as well fess up, man. Go ahead and start the punishment now. There's no reason for a long...
2: Again, if I if I'm taking you away from something, man, Kyle, just tell me
3: because I. I, I I'm... Yeah, I. I i got to go here in a minute, man. I do have to go. i got a kid screaming in the other room, and so I am going to have to go here in okay. a
2: minute. The book is really good. If, whether or not you like racing or not, if you grew up with a family, if you grew up with competing, if you, if you just want to, uh, you know, like I said, it's just an unlikely story. So I, would, I couldn't recommend the book more. I thought it was fantastic. It's called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. It's out now by
0: Kyle Petty. Take care, Kyle. All right, man. Bye-bye. Right, this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: Minimum of four lines for twenty five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without autopay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee twenty four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due thirty five dollars per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Oh, oh